I am Abigail. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thanks. Welcome again to RUF. Uh, my name is Brent Corbin. I know a lot of you, some of you maybe not yet, um, but rest assured I will know everything about you very soon. I'm so glad you're all here. Uh, sorry, feedback. Um, yeah, it's beginning this semester. Um, Last semester, to kind of orient us, to bring us to where we are tonight, uh, last semester we looked at the first half of Mark's gospel. Um, what that means is that uh, Mark's gospel was a first-hand account of the life, uh, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus. And most scholars who look at the Bible a lot more than I do, uh, believe that Mark was actually uh, a good friend, a very close friend of the Apostle Peter. Um, Peter shows up all the time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospel accounts. And he was kind of one of the preeminent disciples or followers of Jesus in the first century. Um, And we're going to look at Peter tonight in this passage. But uh, that to say, Mark is his good and trusted friend, and Peter would likely have been dictating uh, to Mark what he was to write in this. And... um, In the first half of of Mark's gospel, for the first eight or so chapters, those chapters primarily center on who Jesus is, who he is. And so uh, if you'll remember, if you were here last semester, some of you were abroad, uh, but if you were here, if you came, uh, we looked at a lot of things around uh, the miracles of Jesus, the things that he did, the amazing things that he did. Uh, We looked at uh, Jesus getting into fights and these confrontations with the religious leaders of his day, the people who uh, most anyone would have said they were the good people. And Jesus came at them with fury, and he was very, very strong and angry with them because he was saying that their goodness was, was external. They were focusing on kind of doing the right thing so that they could be seen as being good, but In reality, their hearts were far from him. So we saw Jesus' miracles. We saw the way that he uh, fought and clashed with the the religious people of the day. And and, in all of that, when you you kind of start to look at who Jesus is, a, a couple of things emerge. One is that Jesus certainly claimed to be deity. He claimed to be God. And his miracles and the things that he was doing pointed... To that fact, 
that he was doing things that no one else could do, and he was saying things that no sane person would say. And so he had this, this divine deity side to him. But also Jesus was very, he was human. He was human, and we saw his humanity in the way that he related to others, in the way that he forgave people, in the way that he moved toward them and served them and loved them, in the way that people flocked to him. So he was uh, at once both transcendent, God, creator, king, and he was imminent. He was up there, but he was also down here, and he was close, both God and man. And so that's kind of what the first half of Mark's gospel looks at. The second half, which we're going to spend uh, the entirety of this semester looking at, kind of makes a turn. And as it turns, it really starts focusing in and asking the question, what did Jesus come to do? If that's who he is, then what did he come to do? What is his mission? What was his primary purpose in all that he built himself up to be? Why did he come? What is he? And as we ended last semester, we're actually going to start again there tonight. Because Peter's question that Abigail read for us, um, or Jesus' question, Peter's answer, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they kind of answered, and Jesus looks and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, and for the first time, someone gets it. And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You... You're everything that we've hoped for and longed for. You're the one who's going to deliver us as Jewish people. And Jesus essentially says that's exactly right. But what he goes on to do is he starts to talk very darkly and ominously about what that means from this point forward. So there's a turn right here. He immediately starts explaining the fact that he has to die. That he has to die. So that's what we're going to look at. All semester, last semester, it looked like this great triumph. Jesus is kicking butt and taking names and doing all these amazing things. And this semester, that great story of triumph starts to look a little bit more like a story of tragedy. But is it? Does it all end bad? Tonight, we're going to do kind of an introduction to it. And we're going to look at these few verses, this kind of hinge uh, point in the gospel. And as I mentioned, the story looks different from this point on. And so tonight we're going to look at the disappointment of following Jesus and the demands of following Jesus. And finally, the delight of following Jesus. And in doing that, I want you to think about this question for you, or these series of questions. Are you following Jesus? Should you follow Jesus? Are you bored in following Jesus? Are you apathetic? Are you excited? Are you weary? Are you curious? Are you skeptical? So as we think through these things, I want you to be processing, where am I in relationship to the people in this text? Where am I in relationship to Jesus? And what does following him look like for me? So let's look at this story together. The first part here, uh, the disappointment of following Jesus. Okay, let me set this up for us. Uh, I'm a college football fan. Um, 
many of you aren't, I understand that, and, and you don't need to be to, to understand what I'm about to say. I love college football. It somewhat consumes my free time from August until last night, and um, I just love it. I get into the, the passion. I get into the uh, recruiting. I get into the coaching stuff, mainly because my team, OU, needs some new coaches. Um, but I love everything about it. Uh, this year was the <coughs> excuse me. This year was the first year for the college football playoff. Some of you know that. If you don't, all that means is that um, for the past many years, there's kind of been this broken system, in my opinion, uh, about how college football claimed a champion. Well, this year they got down to the end of the season. They said, we're going to take the four best teams and we're going to enter them into this playoff bracket. And the one seed will play the four seed and the two seed and the three seed and all that. And uh, a couple weeks ago, the first round of games happened. And Ohio State beat Alabama. Ohio State was the four seed. They beat Alabama the one seed. No one thought that would happen. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, and then Oregon beat Florida State. No one thought that. Some people thought that would happen. But, but anyway, it was kind of uh, Florida State was, was the two seed. Oregon was the three seed. Both the underdogs won. Okay. Nope. Oregon was the two seed. Yes. Yes. Great. It doesn't matter, actually. I'm in a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> Last night, Ohio State played Oregon for the national championship. And Ohio State was dominant. They, they played very well. They had some turnovers, but they played very well, and they beat them by 22 points. Okay. But imagine that last night hadn't happened. We don't know that Ohio State won and that they're awesome and all this stuff. And we are somewhere between their victory over Alabama in the first round of the playoffs and last night. And they're holding a press conference with Coach Urban Meyer of the Ohio State Buckeyes. And they sit down with Urban Meyer, and they start asking him questions. And they'll say something like this, Coach, how do you expect to defeat the Oregon Ducks? Their passing attack is so good, and Marcus Mariota, their quarterback, is amazing. What are you going to do to beat them? And he'll say something like this, like any, any good coach. Well, we know our game. We have players who know what they're doing. We practice hard. We go out, and we're going to execute. And if on offense, if we play sound and disciplined football, we're going to go out and score a lot of points. And on, and on defense, if we stay in our zones and we read our reads, we're going to go out and we're going to perform, and the scoreboard will take care of itself. And he'll just be like ice as he bulls through this because he's competent. He's a great leader. He's got these people ready for this game. And like any leader on that stage or on the world stage or on any stage, he is <coughs> sorry. He's, he's casting forth this confident vision of where he's going and how they're going to win. And in this passage, it's kind of like Peter and the disciples are between that first round of the playoffs and the championship game. And they come to Jesus... And this conversation happens. Uh, Peter is looking at Jesus, and Jesus uh, says, Who do you say that I am? And he says, You're the Messiah. And that's like a round one victory. That is absolutely right, Peter. And what Jesus does, unlike any seeming intelligent leader or leader that we would know, is he looks at his friends, his disciples, his followers, and says, All right, I'm about to die. What? What? Jesus, we've given everything to follow you. You are everything that we hope for. You're our hopes and dreams. 
you're going to die? And Jesus goes a step further and says, yeah, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And if you want to follow me, you're going to have to die too. You're going to have to die too. And at that point, I hope you can understand how disappointed Peter and his friends and the other disciples must have been. Because we really need to get that they had given everything to follow Jesus. They had left their careers. They had left their families. They had given up their hopes and dreams to follow around this wandering teacher, preacher, rabbi guy who was doing some amazing things for sure, but they had given everything to follow him. And now he's saying, following me is going to be a path toward death, both mine and yours. And the disappointment would have been crushing. It would have been crushing for them. In the same way that following Jesus for some of you, if you understand it, has been similarly crushing. Because if you listen to the gospel message, as we talk about in RUF, if you were to read it on your own, you realize that this, that this isn't like a superstar head coach who is giving us marching orders. And he's like, and if we execute this way and if we do this, it's going to be awesome and we're going to win and we're going to dominate and we're going to leave everyone in our wake and we're going to be bad. No, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, it is absolutely the path to life. It is absolutely the way to deep and lasting joy, which will be offered nowhere else in the world. But make no mistake about what Jesus is saying. It will cost you. It will be disappointing. It will be hard. You will die, and if not, at times in your life, you will feel like you are dying for the cause. You know, if you turn on news right now, or if you turn on NPR, if you turn on anything that has to do with the world, um, you know very well that being killed for being a Christian is a, it's a grim reality for many people in the world today. Um, we kind of went through a period seemingly for about the last 30 to 50 years where there wasn't like a lot of persecution of Christians and people dying because they said they followed Jesus. But with the rise of uh, extreme Islam in the um, Boko Haram and ISIS and these other terror groups, Al-Qaeda and such, uh, legitimately people are dying for saying I'm a Christian. Now, I don't know that. I hope that, certainly hope that's not true um, for anyone in this room. Uh, it may be. But even if that specifically is not true, following Jesus for you is going to be disappointing and it's going to be hard And I promise you, it will feel like death. It will feel like a thousand tiny deaths along the way. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Your image, uh, who you are out into the world, and your perception of what others think about you will necessarily die whenever you decide that, you know what, I'm going to begin to align myself with outsiders, with, with people here at TU, maybe back at home, maybe people within your own family who are on the out and who aren't as cool or who 
are the opposite of cool or who um, are, are annoying or who are hard to be around. And they're, they're loners or whatever for a reason. And your image is going to take a hit whenever for the sake of Jesus and his call for us to love the unlovable people, you move toward those people. That's going to feel like a death. And there are people around you who may even begin to distance themselves from you because all of a sudden being around you becomes inconvenient for them. And that's going to feel like death. Your image is going to take a little bit of a hit in that. Also, what about uh, your pride? Your pride will, will die a little death whenever all of a sudden you, you don't just take your money and spend it on yourself and the latest technology, the latest clothes, or the latest entertainment, or the latest concert, or whatever, because you've been really convinced that following Jesus means that, that you take some of your money and you give it away. And there are people around you who you could use your resources to make their lives better. And you give of your own wealth to see others who are poor and needy elevated in society. And that's going to feel like death for your pride and for your materialism. For some of you, you will experience a death and disappointment in following Jesus when, when you're broken up with. And you're broken up with because you won't give your body to that guy or that girl in the way that they want, or that you won't do it again because you become convinced and convicted that God actually has something better for you, and he's calling you to chastity outside of marriage and, and purity, and, and you've really begun to see that that's going to be costly. And you may get called a certain name, or you may get talked about behind your back after you leave that relationship, and that's going to feel like you're dying. And all I want you to see at this point is that the disappointment that you feel if you are trying to follow Jesus is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's the way that it has been all along. It was that, it's that way for us, and it's the way for Peter and anyone back then who is following him. Look, I don't care what Joel Osteen and all the other liars like him, the moral therapeutic deists who try to sprinkle Jesus and God and the crap they're saying. This life is not your best life. If you are following Jesus, his message is diametrically opposed to this kind of health and wealth and awesome uh, everything right now. Jesus says, no, if you follow me, my life and trajectory is moving toward death. And if you're going to follow me, yours is going to move that way too. Because that's what he came to do. And I would maybe suggest that if, if your life is just littered and laced with extreme comfort, I can't say for sure, but I would suggest that maybe you're not doing it right. That if there is nowhere in your life at all that you feel like you are suffering or disappointed for the cause of Jesus, and and you're a Christian, then that ought to start to trouble you at some level. And maybe you should begin to talk to your friends about that, or maybe come and talk to me and Emily Man, I feel like I'm just living for comfort at every turn. Y'all, I, I get that more than you know. 
Uh, coming out of college, literally my only goal in life, I was telling someone this last week when we were skiing, my goal in life was to belong to a country club <laughs> and have a, at some point a hot wife and, you know, the average two and a half kids or whatever we do in America. Like, that's what I wanted. I just, the, the picture of comfort was it. And for some of you, that's what you want. And I want you to know that following Jesus may crash into that. And we'll crash into that at some point. And when Jesus starts talking this way, not only is he disappointed, he actually gets mad. He gets mad. Look down in verse 32. It says that Peter takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him. Um, What's really interesting and fascinating about this, if not bizarre, that Peter is rebuking Jesus is that uh, we've heard this word rebuke and we've seen this scenario happen in Mark's gospel before. If you're here last semester, you may remember. If not, uh, it's on the podcast or you can read Mark 4. Uh, and there's a little story about Jesus going out into the middle of this sea uh, with his disciples in this boat. And this huge storm comes upon the boat. And most of the people in the boat with him are professional fishermen who would have known exactly what to do in a storm. But this was an unbelievable storm, uncontrollable, and these professional fishermen are freaking out. They're freaking out, and Jesus is asleep in the back. And so they go and they wake him up, and they shake him and say, Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? And it says that Jesus wakes up, and he rebukes the wind and the waves, and they go calm. Jesus looked into the eyes of that uncontrollable, crazy fury of the storm, and he speaks a command, which is what that word means. He commands them, and they go flat. And here's Peter looking into the eyes of what now must appear to him to be this uncontrollable, crazy leader guy that we're following. And Peter looks at him and commands him, Jesus, shut up. What are you talking about? And as we learn from the situation with the storm, Jesus can't be tamed. He is more powerful than the storm. He is more powerful than anything. And what Peter learns right here is that Jesus came, he came with a very specific mission, a very specific task. He came to die. He came not to hold on to his power, but to give it up for others that they may become more powerful. He came not to hold on to his, uh, his divinity and to his, to his heavenly place. He gave that up. He didn't give up his divinity, but he gave up his heavenly position. He came low to earth so that he might win a future of heaven for people. He didn't come to hold on to his life. He came to give it away. And Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Now that sounds really harsh. Verse 33, it's just like, man, calling your best friend Satan? Why would he do that? What he's saying to Peter is, Peter, you don't, you don't get it fully. I know that you've said that I'm the Christ and I'm Messiah, but you don't really get it yet because God's ways aren't your ways. Peter, you don't get it that 
what I'm doing isn't going to make total sense to you for a while. But it will. One day, someday, it will make sense, Peter. But you don't understand it right now. You see, Peter, I didn't come to hold on to my life. I didn't come to run away from sin. I came to bear your sin, Peter. I came to embody sin and to receive the death and atonement from God that that sin deserves and needs. Peter, don't you see that I came to be your substitute? That's why I came. Um, Last week, I think it was last Thursday or Friday, uh, yeah, um, the Charlie Hebdo uh, shootings in France. Have you all seen this on the news? It's awful. Um, It's terrible. So Charlie Hebdo, if you don't know, is this uh, satirical magazine in Paris, France. And... um, Some people will say, I mean, whatever, wisely or unwisely, whatever. Over the past many years, they've been publishing cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, and people who look at them and say that's not smart because you know, that's a royal offense to people in the Islamic faith. Uh, you can't do the things that you're doing and think that it'll be okay. And, um, but they continue to do it. And last week, uh, gunmen, now they're saying maybe up to six accomplices and stuff, walked in to the, the headquarters of this magazine and killed uh, 12 people. I think there were four more that died that day in, an, in a related attack, but separate. And I was listening on NPR this morning. They were talking about, you know, hey, we're still looking for the, the people and the accomplices. And um, they said in response to that, the, the Charlie Hebdo, this magazine, uh, they don't want to. They don't want to let this overcome them, right? Kind of like what happened with the interview before Christmas. You know, the government got involved and they shut it down. And said you can't watch this movie, and then they said no, now you can. And so then they did this release, and it was kind of crazy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you can Google it. It's pretty interesting. Um, similarly, Charlie Hebdo said you can't keep us down. All these journalists said free speech, all this, and so in the wake of that, the the magazine said. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to let their deaths be in vain. And whereas they normally publish, uh, run about 60,000 copies of their magazine, has anyone heard of how many they're doing? Three million copies. This week they are going to publish three million copies of this magazine because what they're saying is, Those were our friends. We are not going to let this evil come and take over our freedom. And what I want you to know is that Jesus willingly came and said, I'm going to let evil come and take me over so that you might be free. But I'm going to take evil from you so that you might be free. And when he looks at his disciples and he tells them what that's going to look like, He doesn't come and say, now, uh, don't let my upcoming death be in vain. Take up, you know, your arms and go fight for me. Go avenge my death. The good people are about to kill me. Go get them. He looks at them and says this in verse 34. And if anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Friends, this is perhaps Jesus' most famous and definitely his most direct look at his followers and say, here's what it looks like to follow me. Now, if you've ever heard that and you've wondered, you know, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it just that I try and do good things because he did good things, or I try and serve people because he served people, or I try and, you know, kind of live this moral life because he was clearly a moral person having done nothing wrong? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? This passage answers that question for you. And it says, to follow Jesus, out of Jesus' own mouth, to follow me means that you are going to follow me in my march to the cross. You are going to follow me in your march to your cross. That, That I get the keys to your life, is what he's saying. That I get control of your life. That you don't get to look at me anymore and say, well, here's what I'm going to go do. And dear God, I pray that you would help me go do all those things I want to do. No, Jesus is saying, when you begin to trust in me, when you know how deeply loved and forgiven you are in me, you're handing me the seat to your car, the driver's seat to your car, and you're not even the co-pilot. He's saying, get in the back seat, I'm going to take you. Now, the thing about Jesus is that he is a good master. He's a good driver. He knows where he's going. He knows who you are. He's not, he's not arbitrary. He's not evil. But he says, I will take control of your life. And that may cost you everything. Um, back in college, I read a couple of books about uh, a missionary named Jim Elliott. Uh, most of you, or not most of you, some of you may have also. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, was a, a great writer. Uh, wrote a few books about him posthumously. Uh, one that I read in particular was called Shadow of the Almighty. Um, this book was kind of a biography of Jim Elliott's life. And he began from a young age, uh, in college, actually about your age, uh, he went to a conference and heard a missionary talk about uh, serving Jesus abroad in another country and giving their life up and everything they had to go follow Jesus and serve him. And he began to be really convicted about wanting to do that also. And that book records a prayer of his. <clears throat> and he says this, God, I pray uh, that you would light these idle sticks of my life, that I may burn up for thee. Consume my life, God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. And the book goes on to talk about him feeling further and further burdened uh, to go be a missionary to an unreached people group. And if you know the story, he ends up uh, in an Amazon forest area down in South America near Ecuador, reaching out to... um, an unreached tribe called the, the Akas, A-U-C-A, Alka, I'm not sure. And um, he would, along with four missionary friends with him, eventually uh, die in the cause. They died in serving uh, this tribe. 
And the question that in, in any of these kind of missionary stories or things like that that you hear, anyone really that you hear who is compelled to go give their lives for someone else, who is so caught up in the idea of, of taking a cause, taking the gospel, taking help to meet people in need, anyone who is in that position, the question becomes, what would possess them to want to go do that? What has to be going through their mind to say, oh, oh, that would be worth it. To die in that cause, in that pursuit, is absolutely worth whatever whatever it costs me, even my life. Jim Elliott is credited with this saying, which no doubt fueled his life. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. I'll say it again. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain that what he cannot lose. See, Jim Elliott got something about the gospel. He understood that his life was forfeit. He had already been rescued and redeemed and saved and given a full inheritance by Jesus. His sin had been covered and atoned for in Jesus' death. And he thought, I I don't even have a life to lose anymore. It's not mine. But I have everything to gain. I have glory that awaits me. Jesus, what do you want with me? What do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with your life? I know this sounds like it's something easy for a pastor to say or your campus minister to say or for a missionary to say, but I'm going to say it. Until you find something worth dying for, you haven't begun to live yet. Until you find an something that captures your imagination and your dreams and compels you to say, whatever it costs, that's worth it. Until you find that, you have not yet begun to live. And what I'm going to suggest further is that as you move about in your life, some of you will try and find that thing in a career, some of you will try to find it in a relationship, some of you will try to find it in, in sexuality, some of you will try to find it in money, in power, in achievement, in all kinds of ways. And I've said it before and I will say it again over and over again. Those things will not satisfy you. Because once you get them, you will realize they are not worth dying for. They're not worth living for. It's not worth it. And so let me close with these thoughts and questions. Um, I I don't know where you are in relationship to Jesus. Um, I don't know if you're still on the front end. You're thinking about who is he. You have doubts. You wonder what it would look like to follow him. Uh, Whether you're all in and you've given everything for him already and you're committed to the cause. I, I don't know where you are. But the message of Christianity is very simple. It is this, that you are at the same time both more broken, sinful, rebellious, independent, and selfish than you ever feared to know. And at that very same moment, 
you are loved by God and accepted by Him through Jesus than you could ever hope. You are more loved and accepted than you could ever hope. And in response to that, the question becomes, if that takes root in your heart, the question becomes, well, what do I do now? How do I live in response to that? One, if you're not a Christian, please don't try and be a, don't try to act like a Christian. Just be moral and do good things without actually being connected to Jesus. You will produce in yourself a lot of frustration, and you will live a life of hypocrisy. Okay, being moral and religious is not the same thing as being a Christian. Okay, so please consider the gospel first. First, consider the offer of what Jesus is saying to you. First, if you are a Christian. God is going to equip some of you and He's going to gift some of you and give you the desires to take your cross and follow Him to a desk at One Oak or to a classroom at McLean High School or to a home with three or five or ten kids. I don't know. But Jesus is going to call you to take up your cross and follow Him into something that may look very ordinary from the outside. And he's saying, you can go and follow me there. You can live for my glory in that place. You can love the people around you. You can serve them. You can take the good news with you to that place as you work hard for this company or this school or this family or wherever it is. It is okay to be a Christian. Furthermore, it is great, it is wonderful to be a Christian in very normal secular jobs. And you need to know that here because the vast majority of you are going to go into something like that. Okay? Jesus may be calling you to take up your cross and follow Him. And if you live faithfully to Him and you want to follow Him in that place, it will feel like dying. Because you will die to ambitions and and pleasures along the way. Some of you in here, though, Jesus is going to gift you and equip you very specifically and call you into ministry. Whether that's with RUF as an intern or in St. Louis to inner city work or here in Tulsa with Crossover Community Impact or abroad in the mission field, Jesus is going to give you the gifts and the desire and the ability to say, Jesus, I want to go wherever you want to send me. I want to take this message to people. And that's a great calling. I love my job. You have to know that it is not a more holy calling than going to One Oak or going to the classroom or staying at home with kids. It's not. And y'all need to know that. And friends, in all of this, and for all of us, whether we're considering it for the first time or the thousand and first time, Jesus does offer and lead us into a life of dying to ourself. But the promise that he makes us is that this death is followed by a resurrection. He even says it in verse 31. He says, and after three days to rise again, friends, what looks like and will feel like dying in this life is followed by by joy and by resurrection and by life. It is not a terrible ending. There is a delight in following Jesus. We can experience it now in increments by the Spirit, but one day, Sunday, we will experience it fully as Jesus raises us up with Him 
And we have life forever. So the promise of the gospel is this. Do not miss it. Die now and live forever. Both will be true. And both will be great when you're united to Jesus. Let's pray.